This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. It's time to break up Britain. Pro-unification politicians won in Northern Ireland in recent elections and pro-independence representatives had victories in Scotland. And our guest today says that breaking up of Britain is inevitable. But it's not enough. That breaking up must go further and not simply mimic the kind of violent, deadly, nationalist balkanization we witnessed in late 20th century Yugoslavia. To avoid a turn toward nationalist fascism, what's needed is a socialist regionalism. Sounds utopian, right? Actually, it's already been proposed and shelved this century by the UK's Labour Party. We'll consider the establishment's nostalgic and publicly beguiling Englishness, its fictionalized representation of English ethnographic and cultural history, the inevitability of the end of Britain, the hope for an end to England as well, and how regionalism can save the archipelago from disastrous nationalist fascism when we speak with Alex Niven, author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. Alex is lecturer in English at Newcastle University. Alex is author of 2011's Folk Opposition and 2014's Definitely Maybe 33 and a Third, which I believe is about Oasis. Alex's writing has also appeared in The Guardian, Pitchfork, The Independent, and L.A. Review of Books. Billy Bragg said of New Model Island, looking for a New England, Alex Niven draws on our diverse identities to forge a radical vision of a once and future land. Pretty cool, right? Follow Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Niven. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, we usually have our weekly meet and greet, which is more of a think and drink. This is how office hours every Wednesday evening. But because of our new schedule, we had to move office hours to Fridays beginning at 6 p.m. and going until at least 9. But there's a far greater likelihood it will go longer now that we're doing it at the beginning of a weekend instead of in the middle of a week. So, Alex, we've been doing office hours Wednesday nights every week for a few years now. Another way in which our schedule is changing. Alex, what are you going to be doing Wednesday nights now that we've moved office hours to Fridays? Uh, the exact same thing I'd be doing at the bar. I'm just going to be doing it at home. <laughs> I see. <laughs> it's just uh, going on about things and uh, wasting myself away. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, uh, but are people, I can do it with my dog now. So. Uh, I was going to say, are people any more attentive at home to what you have to say than during office now, hours? Everyone's heard it all before. <laughs> Especially your dog. <laughs> Uh, the person who gives us the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a huge gift package worth a number of dollars. I don't know what number that is, but it's a number of dollars. Oh, by the way, I will be hanging out a little bit tonight, maybe for a beer. <laughs> I'm probably just going to go home, but I just want to see if anybody's going to be here that may have wandered in from past office hours. So anyway, the person who gives us the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a huge prize package worth some quantity of money. First, you get the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, containing 25 interviews from the first two decades of the 2000s, and everyone can find out more about it at our website, thisishell.com, when they click on support. But wait, there's more. You also get the January 2020 issue of the NRA's magazine, America's First Freedom, which I mentioned earlier on this week's show, and what it reveals about the near-dead membership of their organization. We're not stopping there. You also get the subject of our first question from hell for 2020 an autographed picture to me directed to me signed by the late 
Cincinnati Bengals head coach Sam Weish, who passed away last week. That makes this week's question from hell. What the hell are you going to do with a picture autographed to Chuck of the late NFL head coach Sam Weish if you win? What the hell are you going to do with a picture autographed to me of the late NFL head coach Sam Weish if you win? Leave your answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message your reply via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or email myself or Alex at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com or Alex at ThisIsHell.com. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' reactions to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what the hell are you going to do with the picture autographed to me of the late NFL head coach Sam Weish if you win? Yeah, Warren L. says, someone in Tampa will love it. (laughs) Greg G. says, I'll pass. But old quarterbacks (laughs) never die. They just pass away. (laughs) Harold J. says, it will go on my display case of photos of other deceased Bengals coaches made out to Chuck. Ladio says, give it back to Chuck. <laughs> what the hell are you going to do with an autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck? Joe S. says, use it as an inspiration while I write my dystopian novel of a world ruled by football coaches. <laughs> Dan B. says, hang it next to my autographed picture of Reagan made out to Jello Biafra. Uh, Dan L. says, probably forgetting it in my pocket and washing it with my laundry, then leaving the damaged pieces as my, in my dresser for a few months. Richard M. says, place it on my mantelpiece next to an autographed photo of Chuck in a Bengals hat I am now proposing you give me. (laughs) Brian H. says, file it with Chuck's Blagojevich autograph. (laughs) And uh, Mark C. says, change my name to Chuck. You know, I love every holiday season when I get out our holiday decorations and every year right on the top. There's that Christmas card I got from Rod Blagojevich. I love looking at that thing every year. It just warms the cockles of my heart. Is it personalized? (laughs) Uh, No. It was sent to everybody. Leave your answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM your reply via Twitter at thisishellradio. Email myself or Alex at alex at thisishell.com or chuck at thisishell.com. And again, the winner gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, uh, the issue of the NRA's magazine, America's First Freedom, and an autographed picture by Cincinnati Bengals head coach, the late, great Sam Weish. Okay, wasn't that great? It's time for listener feedback and your emails sent to us at chuckatthisishell.com or direct message via Twitter or sent to us via Facebook. The first is from Jeff with one F who messaged us via Facebook yesterday to tell us, unable to stream the last 15 or so minutes on Capitalism on Edge, that was on Monday's show, Plus, so loved your spiel about legal marijuana. Could you edit it out separately and share it? I don't know what issue you were having with the stream, but it looks like whatever problems that they may have been happening on Monday, any problems that were happening have been completely cleared up, so nobody should be having any issues with the stream. And if you do, please contact us so we can look into it immediately. And Jeff, with one F, you can hear that spiel I did on the recriminalization of marijuana here in Illinois and how I will not have anything to do with. I will not partake in the legal marijuana system here in Illinois. You can find that at our Facebook page. Alex shared it earlier this week. We also got an email from Renwick who writes, Hey Chuck, interesting footnote to your rotten history uh, tidbit on Monday on the Louisiana Slave Rebellion from, uh, again, Monday's show, and possibly an intriguing guest suggestion. A Chicago-born artist organized a reenactment of that rebellion and pulled it off this past November. Thanks, Renwick. Uh, Renwick then sent a link to the artist Dred Scott's reenactment of the rebellion last year, which was in Tense. The New York Times really actually did 
pretty good coverage of it. You can find the artist Dred Scott's work, including his reenactment, at dredscott.net. That's D-R-E-A-D. Scott with two T's. Some of you may remember him here in Chicago as an Art Institute student who did an installation where you were forced to step on the American flag to actually see his art. Again, that's dreadscott.net. Tom sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com. Tom, who always has great guest suggestions, writes, Hi, Chuck. Hi, Alex. It might be a compelling interview to talk about the activists still fighting against mountaintop removal, in Appalachia, you know, with all this climate change and all the other problems that the world is facing right now, kind of forgot all about mountaintop removal. Tom then points us to the new book, Two Decades of Resistance, Coal River Mountain Watch Takes Stock at 20 by Brittany Patterson. He then quotes the book stating, uh, here's a quote from Vernon Halton, Haltum, current co-executive director of Coal River Mountain Watch saying it's been tough lately because a lot of people think mountaintop removal is over and they don't really grasp why we still do this. So, look, it's not just me. He said donors have shifted their priorities to other causes, which has resulted in fewer resources. Coal River Mountain Watch's staff has scaled back, and while it's an asset to be on the ground, the nonprofit also faces fundraising challenges due to its isolated location. The group was central in securing a National Academy of Sciences study into the health impacts of mountaintop removal mine. In 2017, it was abruptly canceled by the Trump administration, of course. The organization has also lobbied repeatedly for the passage of the Appalachian Communities Health Emergency Act, which would bar mining until a health study is done. The bill received a hearing in the House in 2019, but otherwise has had little traction in Congress. Still, in recent years, research has validated many of the fears about the health impacts of mountaintop removal. Studies show a correlation between mountaintop removal and high rates of cancer, lung disease, and birth defects in neighboring communities. Haltum said, the blasting dust is deadly. I mean, it's silica. We've known silica is a killer, but for some reason, people think that Appalachians are immune to it. New research from the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health released this month shows surface mine dust contains more silica than does dust in underground coal mines. The findings come at a time when the most severe form of black lung disease, once thought to be nearly eradicated, is surging in central Appalachia. So thanks, Tom. We interviewed the late, great Julia Bond, who led Coal River Mountain Watch for decades. We interviewed her starting in the late 1990s up to the 2000s and to shortly before her very sad passing in 2011. So we should definitely follow up. I mean, it's been nine years since we were talking about this story. We did get in touch with Coal River Mountain Watch since then, but we're unable to secure an interview. So we're going to see if we can get Brittany on to talk about her book of the 20 years of activism of Coal River Mountain Watch. Coal River Mountain Watch is still doing very, very important work, and you can find out more about them at cmrw.net. And of course, This is yet another one of those stories that the mainstream media ignores, and we will not here on This Is Hell, although apparently we have been ignoring it for the last nine years. Sorry about that. Marco sent an email to Chuck at thisishell.com. Marco writes, hello, Chuck. My name is Marco. I'm a Montevideo. I'm in Montevideo, Uruguay. And This Is Hell is part of my regular podcast schedule for a few years now. Why someone so far away cares about a radio show from Chicago? Not entirely sure. I just like it. But I know that whatever happens here, there hits here one way or another also because it's a effing great show. I especially love the really excellent questions you ask 
ask to the guests. Well, I better get to the point. The other day, I saw an interview with Peter Phillips, not the royal son, despite what Google says. And in my all-knowingly wisdom, I thought that he could be a good guest suggestion. He's promoting his new book, Giants, the Global Power Elite, detailing the 17 transnational investment firms, which control over $50 trillion in wealth and how they're kept in power by their activist facilitators and protectors. Yeah, I totally copy-pasted that, he says. And that's it. There could be a lot of other names that can be suggested, but with Google at hand, I believe it's too easy to make a never-ending list. Anyway, congratulations on the new regular one-hour daily format. I think it's a positive change. Keep that bong-hitting journalism on. P.S. After last October's elections here in Uruguay, I'm guessing Uruguay could sadly become a topic on your show in the next few months. Let's hope not. Marco? We, we, we will be emailing you asking for English-speaking guests who are in Uruguay to get us caught up on the situation there. Also, Peter Phillips has been a guest on our show in the past as he is on the board of the annual Project Censored Project. He even joined us in studio up at WNUR way back in the day, like in the year 2000. That said, we'll put it in the ever-growing list of guest suggestions, Marco. Finally, a listener named John sent us a letter, an actual letter, handwritten through the actual mail to This Is Hell, 20 251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And in it was a check. Thank you very much. And this note I'm a registered Republican, old, white, and straight. The only progressive radio show I listen to is This Is Hell. Keep up the good work. John, if you want to send us anything in the mail again this is held 2251 west devon second floor chicago illinois 60659 and if you have thoughts on how i should feel about john being an old white straight registered republican fan of the show i'd really appreciate it email me at chuck at this is because i have confused feelings about it that's listener feedback, and this is Hell. Send us your thoughts, comments, criticisms, and suggestions of This Is Hell to Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com or message us via Facebook or Twitter. And we'll probably read your email or message on the air. Coming up on This Is Hell, the end of England, and more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is Hell. With independence parties winning recent electoral victories in Scotland and Northern Ireland, the breakup of Britain might be, might be at hand. So what would such a breakup look like? And would it be enough to break the imperial institutions of the historic empire? Or is breaking up Britain not enough and England has to go too? Here to help us get through all these questions and many, many more, Alex Niven is author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. Welcome to This is Hell, Alex. Hey, Chuck. How are you? Good. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Niven. That's N-I-V-E-N. Alex's lecture in English at Newcastle University. Billy Bragg said of his book, New Model Island, looking for a new England, Alex Niven draws on our diverse identities to forge a radical vision of a once and future land, which brings us to the most important question that we can possibly ask you during this entire interview, Alex, and that is, how the hell did you get a blurb from Billy Bragg on your book? <laughs> 
Um, well, you'll have to ask the publisher. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Billy is a very nice guy, uh, perhaps more kind of in- invested in uh, the idea of England than I am, but, you know, he read the book and was very, very kind about his comments. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very pleased to have his endorsement. You write uh, at the center of your book is an argument against the narrow Englishness that has dominated 21st century British culture up to this point and a more hopeful glance forward to the expansive, renovative future that awaits us on the other side of nostalgia for a country that no longer exists. You say that this has dominated 21st century British culture up to this point. Is this kind of idea of Englishness then new? Is this a new idea of what historic Englishness is that's made up out of whole cloth. Yeah, well, I guess it, 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 it comes down to the, the fact that in, in, in the British Isles, we're quite confused about what our, you know, what nationhood means. So obviously for, for many decades, many centuries, uh, before the 21st century, we had um, various notions of, of Britain, of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom, um, Obviously, that you know, uh, ground to a halt to an extent with the decline of the British Empire um, in the late 20th century. So, really, from the late 20th century on, and particularly kind of from the late 90s through the millennium into the 21st century, um, you had people starting to rediscover a more kind of pure, uh, almost a kind of postmodern Englishness, um, in combination with the rise of you know the Scottish independence movement, the devolution of certain powers to Scotland with the uh, foundation of the Scottish Parliament uh, and the Welsh Assembly in Wales. And obviously there's the Irish situation, which is more complicated. Uh, You know, as a kind of um, response to that, you had people saying, well, you know, hey, what about an English, you know, specifically English rather than the British identity? Um, So I think it is quite a recent thing. You know, people try to sort of relate it back many centuries to um, various historical uh, events and historical forms of identity in, uh, you know, English culture. But I think, you know, really we're talking about something that uh, sort of uh, arose and certainly deepened over the last 10, 20, 25 years. Here in the United States, many embrace the myths of American exceptionalism and American innocence, often believing in a country that never existed. What is the country that many in England believe in that once did exist but no longer does? Is it simply the imperial Britain? Well, I think largely, yeah. I mean, that's that's the problem. But, you know, uh, you know uh, obviously you guys have your own problems in the States, but you know, a specific problem about our identity is not, you know, not only is that imperialist um, legacy quite quite a bad thing in itself, uh, as I say, there's also confusion about, you know, which country does that apply to? Is it is it Britain as a whole? Is it, you know, is it just England? Um, you know, I think generally in both cases, though, it's, it's quite dominated by uh, quite a kind of London-centric, you know, there are kind of big regional... Uh, divisions and divides throughout the British Isles, but generally um, our sort of historical identity has been quite negative. It's been quite conservative, um, quite dominated by, you know, myths of, um, you know, the aristocracy and a a conservative culture that's uh, based, you know, around London and and particularly in the the southeast of England. 
Why do you think that always goes back to the conservative traits, a conservative look at Britain? Uh, the same thing happens here in the United States when it comes to American exceptionalism and American innocence. It seems to defer to uh, a conservative nature. Why do you think that is the case when nations are trying to, to define what they might see as a national soul? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we're opening up here to the, the sort of wider debates about the nature of nationalism and the, and the nature of nationhood. Um, you know, I guess in, in both cases, in the case of uh, the United Kingdom and the United States, um, you know, they're both countries with a, with a conservative, uh, a fundamentally conservative political orientation, or at least, you know, have been in, in recent times. Uh, I guess, you know, you could look at other nationalisms in, in, in the British South context, you know, Scottish nationalism, for example, uh, and look at that as a more positive identity. I guess you could look at French um, identity as in some ways more positive. You know, they've had kind of multiple revolutions and a kind of, they have a kind of strong, uh, you know, uh, you know, small R Republican tradition. Um, and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, you know, some would say that all nations are inherently, you know, the minute you, uh, you know, reduce a people to these kind of, you know, archaic historical myths of, uh, you know, nationhood, they're always going to be backward looking and always going to be conservative, you know, but I guess that's a, a wider question about the nature of nationalism. To what extent uh, do you believe Brexit is driven by this narrow Englishness that you mentioned in your book? Yeah, I think I think quite a lot. I mean, you know, there are different ways of looking at Brexit. There's a you know, there's a left-wing argument about Brexit because you know the EU is in a sense, you know, it's essentially a uh, you know a kind of bankers organisation. Really, it's 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 you know it has a kind of democratic side to it, but it's really about you know it's a kind of trade block. It's promoting capitalist interests. Uh, so there's a kind of left-wing argument against. Uh, EU membership and in favour of Brexit, but overwhelmingly um, it was driven, you know, and certainly the victory of Leave in the referendum in 2016 was driven by quite a kind of small-minded sense of, uh, you know, Britishness, Englishness, and again, you know, confusion about those two things. Uh, You know, it was overwhelmingly older people who voted Leave, uh, you know, people who were perhaps nostalgic about um, you know, it's quite archaic, outdated uh, myth of, of British and English national identity. So, yeah, so I think that was a huge factor. You write that I think we need to abandon England and start looking for a replacement, as well as trying to show up the vanity of recent fulminations about Englishness and their incompatibility with the 21st century socialist cause. And you offer an alternative to the backward-looking, centralizing difference-denying and simply inaccurate cliché that England is an island nation. Again, just to compare it to here, back here in the States, here in the continental U.S., not including Alaska, we have a sort of a sense of being an island nation in that we have oceans on both our east and west coasts with only one neighbor to our north and one neighbor to our south. How is a nation, any nation, misunderstood when it is viewed as somehow physically isolated from the rest of the world in this age of free-flowing capital and financialized globalization with advanced 
advanced logistical capabilities that reach around the world. Mm -hmm. How does any nation misunderstand itself when it sees itself as any kind of isolated or island nation? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you've, you've highlighted exactly the, the issue. It, it is a kind of imperialist uh, instinct to, you know, reduce the kind of multiplicity and complexity of different peoples and identities to one, you know, very strong, centralised, uh, you know, imperialist or, or, or kind of quasi-imperialist state. Um, and that, you know, has, has been the case in... In a British context, obviously, you know, going back many hundreds of years, but continuing into the present in, in some senses, and obviously, it, it not has also been the case in, in the United States. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think imperialist cultures and imperialist, uh, you know, nations do always, they always, you know, of necessity have to reduce, uh, you know, multiple identities and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, diverse forms of. Uh, self-being to a kind of strong centralized state. I find that fascinating that this kind of this sense of isolation could breed imperialism. And within your book, and I don't mean this in any kind of negative way whatsoever, within your book, there are many of those kinds of contradictions that make you rethink uh, things like regionalism. And you mentioned how regional devolution, which preceded the retreat into Englishness over the last decades, must be at the forefront of our contemporary left revival. Why do you see regional devolution as a solution to what you view as narrow Englishness, how does regionalism undermine Englishness? Well, I, I guess exactly for the for the, the reasons that um, I just just outlined uh, in response to the, the, the previous question. You know, I think um, regionalism, certainly in in a, in a British Isles context, is a way of opposing um, the kind of this kind of strong centralised. Uh, you know, imperialist or, or quasi-imperialist or post-imperialist, uh, you know, British or English state. Um, I mean, you know, we already have it in the, in the case of Scotland, Wales, um, you know, an island in, a, in an, as I say, a kind of more complex sense. You know, there's small nations with populations of, uh, you know, between about three, five, six million relatively small populations, whereas... Uh, England's population is between 50 and 60 million, so a much bigger uh, country. Um, it, you know, it would seem to make practical sense to me and to, to many other people to, um, if we're going to have Scottish independence, which is um, an eminent possibility now, if we're going to have Irish reunification, in response to that, it would seem sensible to me to, you know, to have some form of devolved government to British regions which have similar populations to Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Um, so it's you know there's a common sense argument, but also you know I think that will cut against this quite London-centric, um, you know, quite conservative, quite kind of establishment culture, um, you know, which is based in in, in Westminster in London, um, and which has been built up over many centuries. I think you know to kind of smash that um, establishment, one way of doing that is to kind of spread spread power spread government, spread culture, spread identity around, um, you know, away from this kind of strong imperialist centre and two different parts of the country. 
We are speaking with Alex Niven. He is author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Niven. You are concerned about a retreat into the dimly recalled nationalisms of the Middle Ages, and you offer an argument that seeks to disprove nationalists and advocate regionalist ideals. Is the choice, are the only two options then for... Uh, England for Britain are the only two choices decentralized regional socialism or centralized nationalist fascism are those the only two options at hand or is that uh, a narrow view of what could be the possibilities for Britain um I think those those are broadly the two the two options I mean you know as we, we sort of started off talking about this uh revival of Englishness, this revival of English identity in the 21st century. I mean, there have been kind of leftist and socialist attempts to um, to advocate, a, you know, a kind of radical Englishness. And some of those attempts have been you know, very persuasive. Billy Bragg, for example, um, has done that, you know, very powerfully. People kind of uh, dredge up various historical models, like, you know, the kind of uh, the diggers and the levelers of the English Civil War in the in the 17th century, you know, through the kind of radical traditions of the uh, of the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, the Chartists, um, and the, you know, the growth of the labour movement in the late 19th century into the 20th century, the creation of the NHS, National Health Service, um, in the late 1940s. Um, but it seems to me that you know all of those um, uh, you know all of those attempts are uh, you know that that in a sense clutching at straws that, you know, that these things do exist, but they've always been slightly marginal to this much more powerful kind of, you know, centralized establishment, conservative uh, culture and conservative, uh, you know, kind of political uh, center in England and, you know, indeed throughout the United Kingdom as a whole. Um, so, you know, various people do, there are various kind of leftist attempts to say that we could have a kind of, uh, you know, a progressive England, a progressive Englishness based on a, an English parliament uh, for the country as a whole. But it just seems to me that that, you know, that's always going to be, uh, you know, doing battle with this much more powerful historical uh, identity and historical tradition, which is, um, you know, conservative at best and indeed, you know, further to the right in, in, in lots of cases. So it does seem to me that, you know, short of an international socialist utopia, which, you know, remains uh, obviously, uh, you know, I would say an, an ideal, but but perhaps a kind of one slightly, uh, you know, in, in in the kind of long term. Uh, I think you know the two options are um, you know a, a kind of nationalism or a, a, you know as I see it, a more progressive, more socialistic idea of kind of you know smaller units with more ability, you know, smaller kind of regional units with the capability of you know empowering themselves. Speaking of that internationalist socialist uh, utopia, uh, you write as socialists, we should be trying to move towards a future in which national boundaries are eradicated completely. And I have seen debate on social industry outlets over uh, borders when it comes to socialists here in the United States, people working with the Democratic Socialists of America or different organizations uh, talking about the controversy over borders, over ICE, the uh, law enforcement outfit 
that we have at the border. Why is it necessary for all borders to be eradicated under socialism? Can socialism happen with borders? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure of the answer to that question. I, you know, I think, as I say, the, the kind of ideal, the abstract, is you know the abstract goal is for for socialism is an internationalist one. Um, nevertheless, clearly and particularly in the short term, you know uh, that's somewhat difficult to see being realised in in practice. Um, and you know even even in a kind of international socialist utopia, I think you you probably have to have administrative units. You know you you, you can't have you know, the entire world being governed, uh, you know, simultaneously. Um, so, you know, you do have to break things down. I mean, that that to me seems, uh, you know, is one uh, reason why, you know, the, the, the kind of idea of the region, the regional units, the kind of flu- slightly fluid, um, you know, way of breaking down the world into, you know, into kind of units of, uh, you know, two, three million, let's say, uh, is, is a much more is a much better way of doing things than you know bigger countries that are you know ruled in a kind of quasi imperialist way, um, and you know the, the region seems to me, uh, you know, yeah, it's a bit it's it's, it's more fluid. There would clearly be some kind of process of border control, but it would be loose, um, and it you know it seems to me to be a, you know a, a kind of better alternative to the nation. And I would think so, too. But the argument would be again against it would be that this could lead to more entities, more units, which might mean less cooperation, which might mean more difficulty in coordination. And you point out that the breakup of this relatively short lived nation of Yugoslavia into a series of much smaller regional states from the 1990s, eventually Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro and North Macedonia Mm. has become shorthand for the potentially disastrous effects of ad absurdum contemporary nationalism. This might give us some pause for thought in the context of our attempt to reimagine the islands, considering the examples of the balkanization of the former Yugoslavia. Might we not conclude that the deconstruction of larger polities into smaller ones given over to violence and identitarian hair splitting is the wrong road to take and instead endorse a more universal politics transcending the existence of all nation states? Now, that's the question that you asked, but does Yugoslavia prove that regionalism necessarily means destabilization, increased antagonisms, and deadly violence. Well, I think the key thing about the Yugoslavia example is that it's very ethnically, um, you know, they're they're kind of ethnic or um, at least in some senses ethnic or cultural divides, which, uh, which, which led to the breakup of Yugoslavia, they're quite kind of, um, you know, they're quite uh, entrenched and kind of partisan divides uh, within the former Yugoslavia, which, you know, were partly ethnic and partly religious. You know, I I think, you know, the minute it gets ethnic and the minute, you know, you start dividing regions up on the basis of, you know, ethnicity and religion, you know, that's when it gets really dark. Um, You know, it seems to me that, you know, it's possible to imagine a, uh, you know, an administrative division of the world into regional units that aren't, you know, that absolutely and categorically should not be, 
you know, the divide shouldn't be ethnicity. It should just be, you know, relatively arbitrary kind of geographical uh, and civic, really, you know, based on, you know, cities, you know, the city at the centre of the region uh, being a kind of cultural civic centre, a centre where you have certain administrations uh, and institutions. Um, so I think, you know, the, key, the absolute key thing is is that it never gets reduced to ethnicity, which, you know, is a very dark road to go down. And, you know, as I explore at one point in the book is in an English context and, you know, I, I would imagine in, in most contexts throughout the world, ethnicity is, you know, quite a spurious scientific notion when you actually study the kind of DNA, you know, the kind of, there's this notion that, you know, England is Anglo-Saxon, for example, but actually when you look at the kind of the most recent scientific research and kind of research into DNA patterns, um, you know, the notion of, a kind of unified Anglo-Saxon ethnicity is, you know, completely, uh, completely spurious. You write that the negative deadness of England and Englishness is a nightmare from which we are all trying to awake. For those of us not imbricated in the English establishment in some way or else beguiled by the various forms of popular and middle-brow national nostalgia, it is difficult not to agree with the conclusion of the Anglo-Jamaican dub poet Linton Kwesi Johnson in a lyric of 1980, England is a bitch. There's no escaping it. So those not trying to escape Englishness are those in the establishment and the beguiled by nostalgia, those who have fallen for the establishment's propaganda, if you will. To what extent is what you see as an English nightmare the wreckage from a class war between those living the dream within the establishment or those not in the establishment but who believe in the dream and the rest who are living a nightmare? Is this the result of a class war? Absolutely. I think it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the kind of, you know, as, as, as you said, you know, the, the actual, um, you know, the kind of material basis of the English or British, uh, you know, economy and, and it's, you know, it's kind of contemporary manifestation is, is a globalized one. It's, 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 you know, global capitalism. That is where the kind of money comes from. And, you know, before, uh, the late 20th century, it was similarly global. It was an imperialist one. You know, the, the kind of the wealth of England, the wealth of Britain was derived from, you know, throughout the world, the exploitation of peoples uh, throughout the world. Um, but, you know, in, almost to kind of cover that up, both in a, in the past and in the present, um, you know, England, Britain, you know, the English and British establishments have had to almost kind of pretend that that global context doesn't exist. I've almost had to kind of retreat into a kind of quaint, um, you know, kind of village square, kind of, you know, quaint kind of village church aesthetic, you know, this sense that, you know, English people just like, you know, uh, you know, pints of pints of warm ale in a, in a you know, cozy village pub. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they like kind of, kind of going for walks in the countryside and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I think these are these, there's a kind of, uh, denial of our, you know, the, the material basis of our economy and our society, which is, which is global by trying to, you know, project the upper class, essentially trying to project, um, you know, their, this kind of version of kind of humility and humbleness, um, and, you know, almost a kind of populist, you know, you have this image of the kind of rural, you know, uh, this kind of rural 
working class uh, culture in which, you know, um, you know, farm laborers are kind of deferential to the local noblemen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, in an attempt to kind of deny the more urban, proletarian, um, modernistic, you know, modern, modernizing and modernist aspects of, of British culture. So I absolutely think, you know, there is, there is this, this, this narrative of the upper class and the, and the bourgeoisie trying to kind of, you know, deny the working class their identity and project a kind of, uh, almost a kind of medieval fantasy of English and British identity uh, in its place. And you mentioned the pseudo-populism in your book. You mentioned how it's poten- mm. there's a potential for regionalism to have a lot of the uh, attraction that people see in pseudo-populism. There's a very big concern on the left uh, around the world about the pseudo-populism that's happening on the right. And how can you possibly maybe potentially, uh, co-opt that kind of uh, operation. So in what way do you think that this is a, uh, that pseudo-populism can be undermined by this kind of regionalism? Why do you think it can be? Well, yeah, you know, this is, this is a million dollar question. Um, you know, um, I think as I say, you know, it, it just, you know, the starting point has to be, you know, this, advocacy of, um, you know, a more authentic kind of civic culture that is, uh, you know, more open to people of, you know, to working class people in particular, but, you know, that kind of, you know, is is not about a kind of upper class projection of, um, you know, uh, these kind of monolithic conservative cultural touchstones alongside a kind of sense, you know, a kind of racist kind of anti-immigrant populism um you know i think it's it's about recovery of you know a positive kind of modernistic civic um you know working class cultural identity how you do that as i say you know it's 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 kind of difficult to imagine difficult to conceive of how how you start doing that um so you know i'm afraid i don't have any answers but that's something that we you know we have to strive towards certainly and you uh, write that terms like Anglo-Saxon, Viking, Celt, Pict, Britain, Norman, and Roman are probably historically imprecise, but the general picture of a landscape trodden by disparate ethnic peoples is certainly broadly accurate when it comes to Britain. What is more, we must remember that for many centuries, indeed until the rise of the railways in the industrial period, travel by sea was by far the quickest, easiest mode of transport known to human civilization. As a consequence, far from separating the islands from continental Europe, the sea actually connected them to the continent in the manner of a modern high-speed rail link. Is there then no Englishness? And there never was, as it was an always-changing, interconnected port of various cultures co-mingling and creating entirely new identities that are extremely different from what they were in the previous generation or generations. Is any sense of there ever being any Englishness a myth as what makes up the cultures of England is always changing, ever dynamic and elusive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, I think you know um, the British Isles, in a sense, a bit like the United States in that in that respect. They were, you know, they were, um, a, you know, a, a kind of destination for various migrations. I mean, yeah, and to an extent, all all countries are like are like that. Um, 
so yeah, you know, so I think, well, you know, England was a country in a kind of hard material sense from, you know, the kind of uh, late Middle Ages until, you know, really the 17th, perhaps 18th century, at which point it merged with, you know, Scotland, Wales, it, was, it had already merged with Wales and kind of Ireland in, in, in a more complicated way to become Great Britain, the United Kingdom. Um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that England is, you know, England did exist. You know, it, it, you know, it was a, it was a legitimate country, a kind of historical country. Um, but I don't think it, you know, it does exist in a kind of. We have the kind of outline of the English borders, and it, you know, it might come to exist again in the in the advent of Scottish independence, Welsh independence. Um, but, I, you know, it doesn't really exist in any really meaningful ways, uh, you know, in terms of nationhood. And, yeah, yeah, in terms of the kind of deeper ethnic context, as I say, it's, you know, the moment you start in- investigating the science underneath that, you realise that, yeah, you know, there's never really been an English people in a kind of, um, in any kind of unified sense. Um so, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. So if England wanted to, I'm not trying to come up with some sort of eugenics program or English exceptionalism program here, but if England wanted to remain English, wanted to embrace Englishness, would it not do a Brexit? Is Brexit, historically, is that kind of relationship with Europe, is that kind of what has defined the history of England? Is Brexit historically antithetical to what Britain has always been? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. You know, I guess Europe has also always been shifting and you know so europe has always been a kind of shifting entity um you know there are different ways of situating england slash you know britain in in its kind of geographical context it was you know had close relations with scandinavia and with a kind of north sea culture that stretched you know to iceland and, and greenland and you know actually to to the northern united states um obviously in a in a modern context, Britain has had a special relationship with the United States, and that's certainly you know there's a kind of sense that you know Boris Johnson now is moving Britain towards a kind of uh, you know very close economic relationship, kind of newly close economic relationship with uh, with Trump and with with Trump's America. Um, but yeah, absolutely, Britain has always you know Britain has always been European uh, in a cultural sense. Um, so yeah, yeah, with you know, with the caveat, as I say, that Brexit is not, you know, uh, we're not leaving Europe. We're leaving the EU. We're leaving a kind of, you know, capitalist trade block, which you know isn't necessarily a bad thing on some level. Nevertheless, you know, that will, um, that that has and will lead to a renewal of kind of isolationist nationalism and a kind of rejection of a more cosmopolitan. Um, potentially more positive internationalist culture that connects us to Europe um, in, in certain profound ways. You're right. Given the fundamentally populist idea at its core of regionalism, it really shouldn't be all that difficult to integrate regionalism into popular left campaigns. Rather than rejecting populist invocations of place entirely, the Campaign for Regional Empowerment offers the possibility of an enhanced socialist modernist version 
of love of country. How easily, how thin of a line is between that love of country and nationalist fascism? Is that a very mm. difficult line to walk? It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, love of love of country is, is is a difficult phrase, but you know, in that context, you know, and more generally, I certainly, you know, mean it. You know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with. And I think that it's potentially something very positive about people being, you know, people loving their surroundings, their community, the place that they come from. Um, and, you know, as I say, in a kind of civic way, in a, in a way that, you know, encourages us to, to you know, to kind of to love where we've come from, to love our family, to love our friends, to love our community, and to want to make that place better. Um, I don't think, that, you know, that's what I would mean by, you know, love of country, um, it's not, I, I, you know, it's not country as in a kind of nation state, um, and as in a kind of nationalist in a nationalist context. It's, you know, I, I guess a country is a kind of country of, um, you know, uh, I use it to, to denote a, a place and a community and a kind of feeling of identification with where we're from. Um, but you're absolutely right. It is, you know, it is. You always have to guard against the kind of distortion of that sensibility and that impulse, um, you know, on the grounds of race, um, nationalism, conservative mythologies of various kinds. You are right. Far from being monolithic realities, modern populisms like the recent Englishness phenomenon have arisen fairly quickly and superficially during a recent period of cultural questioning and flux. Moreover, they have been pretty aggressively propelled by certain powerful tendencies in the media and cultural industries. I love asking this very simplified question. Is this all the right wing media's fault? Is the worst thing that has happened to the nation state, those who are uber patriotic to that same nation state? Has the recent English phenomenon put Englishness phenomenon put England and any idea of Englishness at risk? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it is it is there's a big right wing press aspect to this. Um you know, so I, as I talk about in the in the book, the, you know, in the in the you know the nineties was an interesting moment, certainly in a in a British and an English context, because nationalism was actually, um, you know, it had kind of fallen out of fashion a bit. Um, but since you know since then, there have been you know the, the tabloid press has quite aggressively promoted various forms of nationalism and patriotism and and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's absolutely as with everything is a big, is a big kind of media uh, narrative here. You know, obviously there are other factors too. You know, there's the kind of, I think people do. There is a kind of, um, you know, kick against globalization and the kind of deterritorialization of um, the global economy and a, and a sense of people kind of, you know, trying to recover a sense of self, which. Um, you know, I think often gets unfortunately, uh, you know, colonised by right wing and right wing and conservative tendencies, uh, whereas it it should, and you know, I certainly think it, you know, um, it could be channeled towards socialistic and leftist ends if 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 you know if we had the means. 
One last question for you, Alex. We have been speaking with Alex Niven, author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. Alex's lecture in English at Newcastle University. He is author of 2011's Folk Opposition and 2014's Definitely Maybe 33 and a Third. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Niven, and that's N-I-V-E-N. What we do with all of our guests, Alex, is our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In your opinion, do we need to break apart England to bring all of what was Great Britain back together, not in the same format, but to bring all those people back together. Is the only way to save England to break it apart? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I was expecting a much <laughs> much more difficult question to answer than that. But yeah, I think the answer for me is, is relatively straightforward. Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, I think... Um, you know, England hasn't really existed as a country for hundreds of years. I think, you know, to retreat into a kind of historical, kind of medieval um, nation state in a kind of postmodern way, to revive it in a kind of postmodern way would be fairly disastrous. I, I think, you know, we should we should break it apart and kind of, you know, smash this kind of old, uh, you know, kind of musty, you know, leftover imperialist country and you know divide power up more fairly throughout throughout the islands um and absolutely yeah i think we should break england break england apart as, as soon as possible alex i really appreciate you being on the show this is a topic that we haven't discussed in the past because it really hasn't come up that much uh, even though back in 2004 the labor party uh, had already shelved this idea of regionalism uh it just hasn't come up as much in the past until the votes that mm. just recently happened in scotland and northern ireland so i really appreciate you being on the show because this is definitely a concept and a way of looking at the world that i think everybody should be considering when it comes to regionalism thank you so much for being on our show this week Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. All right. Take care, Alex. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. The person who gives you gives us the best answer to this week's question from Hell wins a big prize package worth something. You get the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive. Uh, let's see. What else do you get? The January 2020 issue of the NRA's magazine, America's First Freedom, which I mentioned earlier this week and about how it revealed how everybody in the NRA is about to drop dead. And uh, an autographed picture that was signed to me by the late Cincinnati Bengals head coach Sam Weish, who passed away last week. This week's question from Mel is, what the hell are you going to do with a picture autographed to Chuck of the late NFL head coach Sam Weish if you win. What the hell are you going to do with a picture autographed to me of the late NFL head coach Sam Weish if you win? Leave your answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message your reply via Twitter at thisishellradio or email myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more of our listeners' reactions to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What the hell are you going to do with an autographed picture of late Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck? <laughs> I, I had the over-under on the entire history of This Is Hell mentions for Sam Weish at one and a half, and we've totally blown that away in this year. Barrett M. says, Gar uh, garage sale. I almost said garbage sale. Garage sale. <laughs> Jeff C. says, 
throw it out the window of my van in post-apocalypse landscape that used to be an Australian forest. Oh, okay. Just so we can know what is important. Mm -hmm. Jack B says, use it to roll a joint, of course. <laughs> Michael LP what? says, for an unnatural act, of course. Kuhn <laughs> uh, L says, I'm going to treasure it by taking a dump on it and sharing it with Fox News. <laughs> and via email, uh, Adam B says, re-gift next Christmas for Bernie. <laughs> nice leave your answer again at our facebook page uh, via twitter or email it to us you'll if you have the best answer you get that this is how guide to the 21st century flash drive the january 2020 issue of the nra's magazine america's first freedom and what must be the oddest combination of prizes everywhere you also get an autographed picture from the late cincinnati bengals head coach sam weish real portrait of america <laughs> it really is quite a cornucopia isn't it we, Alex, will have the rest of uh, the answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. And from now on, we'll be announcing the winner for the question from hell every Thursday. This is Hell. Office hours are now at a new time, on a new day. We are now holding our weekly meet and greet, which is more of a think and drink that takes place at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little Indian neighbor neighborhood that now happens on Fridays every Friday evening beginning at 6 p.m. and going until at least 9 p.m. now every Friday night. When I posted the announcement on social industry outlets listeners responded that Fridays are far more convenient and it's far more likely that they'll hang out with us now that office hours are happening on the weekend. Join us now every Friday night for This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Meet myself and other members of the This Is Hell crew, as well as other listeners of This Is Hell, who I'm certain you have far more in common than just this stupid show, as we are expanding to a five-day-a-week show, you can now become part of the This Is Hell crew. We are looking for volunteer board operators and producers. We will train you, work with your schedule, and you can become part of our show. All you have to do is contact us, telling us you're interested in working on the show, and we'll go from there. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, or you can drop by Fridays, this Friday, for instance, during office hours, and we'll show you the studio. Become a volunteer on This Is Hell by emailing us or dropping by during office hours any Friday night. Finally, we do our show from studios above Carrie's Lounge. There is also a meeting space that is open for anyone in the community or community groups to organize in a neutral setting. You don't have to meet at your friend's home. You don't have to clean your house up because other activists are coming over. All you have to do is contact me again, Chuck at thisishell.com, and I'll connect you with the people in charge of scheduling at the space. Again, if you are a community member or organization who is looking for a neutral space to meet, contact me at Chuck at thisishell.com, and we just might have the space for you. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show, streaming at, not, at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, I don't know yet, but they're probably going to be talking about Iran. <laughs> okay, so we have... Three possibilities for Iran uh, are two now, Near Rosen and Kevin Harris. We might be talking about what just happened in Spain with their election with Becker Seguin. There, I got an article from Sarah Hausman over at Scientific American about somebody who's reporting from the Australia wildfires. So that's a possibility. So we're going to have somebody on tomorrow talking about something. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if 
you or find out, first of all, who's going to be on tomorrow's show, but also to find out if you have won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing. Also, thanks to uh, Alex Niven, author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Niven. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>